Hello everyone, welcome to the third Lincoln Lead Seminar. Um, today's topic is engineering. Uh, my name is Anita Simon and I'm a DPhil student studying cell biology. So admittedly, I know very little about engineering. But uh, nevertheless, I will be your chair tonight as we address the question of how technology is shaping our future. So I think that discussing and understanding this question is extremely important today more than ever before uh, for two reasons. First of all, technology is accelerating, so it's becoming incredibly powerful, incredibly fast, and um, I think that makes keeping up with understanding how technology is uh, influencing our lives very difficult for the everyday citizen. Secondly, I think the way that technology is being integrated into our lives is happening in a very personal level. So not only into all the systems around us, but also um, into our basic biology and changing our fundamental human experience. So I'm looking forward to hearing from our panelists tonight about what I think will be three very unique perspectives on how technology is shaping our future. So I'm just going to begin by thanking the MCR academic team for helping to organize a series of events with a very big shout out to Paul Stevens, who's put a tremendous amount of time and effort into making all of this possible. Uh, and just from a logistics point of view, I'm going to briefly introduce each of the panelists, and uh, they will then be given 15 minutes to discuss their opinions on tonight's questions. We will then have 15 minutes in the end for further discussion and to answer any questions from the audience. So without further ado, our first speaker will be Lincoln Fellow, Dr. Paul Stavenu. So Paul is a Fellow of the College and Associate Professor in Photonics at the Department of Engineering Science. He completed his Bachelor's of Engineering in Electronic Engineering and went on to attain his PhD from the University College London. Following this, he has held postdoctoral positions at <coughs> University College London, University of Oxford, and Imperial College London. So his uh, research interests span the development of both organic and inorganic materials for photonic applications and optoelectronic devices such as lasers, solar cells, and uh, electroabsorption modulators. Very impressive. <laughs> so I've been told that these all involve light-matter interactions and the flow of radiation within structures, but I'm just going to have to take Paul's word for it. So next we'll be hearing from Nicola Shaw. Um, so she is uh, the National Grid's UK Executive Director. She's positioned firmly at the heart of meeting the energy challenges of the future. So she joined the uh, National Grid in July of 2016 after she was a CEO at High Speed One for five years. She's highly regarded in the UK transport industry, and in July 2015, she was asked to report to the UK government on the future structure and financing of network rail. She holds a BA in Modern History and Economics from Oxford University, and a Master's of Science in Transport from MIT. So tonight, she's gonna to be focusing on how technology has impacted the energy system and markets and the future roles it might play. Finally, we have uh, Lincoln College student Holly Hathwell, who is a uh, third-year DPhil student in chromosome and developmental biology. She did her undergraduate degree in theoretical physics, but has come over to the dark side of biology. Uh, and she's applying ideas in neural networks to automate the analysis of vast data sets of microscope images. Her research into machine learning, machine learning has unearthed an interest into the ethical questions surrounding the use of algorithms and AI in our daily lives. So, if you guys will please join me in uh, welcoming our panelists tonight, and we'll begin. I'd, uh, I'd also like to thank Paul and 
team for, for the invitation again. And it's quite an interesting theme, how is technology shaping the future, when, when I started to sort of prepare for this, I, suddenly occurred to me, I, I wonder what technology means to people. It, it often means different things. I think nowadays, my slight worry is technology means software. And uh, I, I hope in the next few slides, or certainly a few 10 minutes, I'd like to show you, or at least remind many of you, that technology <coughs> is quite broad. The other part of technology as well, which is odd, is it's, it's perhaps something like a Russian doll. So you have a core technology that's maybe inside another technology, and that's a new technology. So you can have different, different dolls, if you like, and they can too have different applications. So what is the technology? Is it the application or is it the underlying thing? And so some of these are, are some of the things I'm going to touch on. Um, the other point I wanted to mention was this thing, the future. So I thought what would be useful is not only establish what I knew about technology, but also maybe show how technology has got us to the present. And then hopefully we'll be in a, a reasonably good position to uh, speculate about the future. So let me be clear, the, the technology I'm going to try and uh, highlight is, might appear niche, they're called optoelectronic devices. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll realize that we use these all, every day, all the time. And if you break down this word, optoelectronics, the opto part is optical, so this means light. The electronic part is essentially electricity. And so these devices, these things, are really looking at the interaction or the conversion of light and, and electricity. And this is, uh, I, I believe, is a, has been a key and will continue to be a, a major technology for the future. Well, of all these devices, we can sort of think of two types. On the left here, we have one device in the middle, the thing, and you might put electricity in and you'll get some light out. Uh, and if we put some names to this, a laser is, is possibly something you've heard about. Light emitting diodes um, is another thing. The whole point is this device is converting the electricity to light. And the other type of device is simply the reverse of this. You might send light in to a thing, and out will come electricity. And there you start to think about solar cells or optical detectors. You're detecting this light. Well, the key point is that these are physical devices. They are a technology. They're hugely dependent on material development. And by material development, if, if I mention the word materials, you hopefully you will think of physics, chemistry, engineering, and material science all in one. There's a huge amount of science and development that goes into these materials. And they continue to evolve. And in the technology or in this Russian doll approach, I'm going to sort of be setting these as the inner core and then having a look at maybe the outer core and how that's going to change and how that principally depends on the material development. So if I take an existing technology, and I, I have here a laser, I'm very fond of this laser, it was one I uh, was involved with, with quite a few years ago now. My laser pointer is not as good. So there are really two things I want to emphasise here. This, this is a corner of a, a sandcastle, so you're seeing the edge of one of these this later. The light will be generated somewhere here and will shoot out the top. 
the, one of the things I want to bring out is, is this is a scale bar. It's like a ruler. This is two and a half microns. That's about two and a half thousandths of a millimeter. These are very, very small devices as an overall device. What's even smaller are these multiple layers, these string of layers that make up the device. It is not a single material. That would be something like silicon chips. These optoelectronic devices necessarily are made up of many different materials, many different layers. And if we zoom in at just this little bit here, you start to see the picture. In this small region here, there are even more layers. We can't see them on this. If you zoom in here, and we're now down to atoms, and I'm not sure if it looks fuzzy, but if you, you can actually see the individual atoms here. So we're looking at one or two atomic layers of a material in this device, in that device. Well, these are, these are incredibly well-ordered. They're beautiful crystals. And that is really the result of, of this development I've been talking about. Well, as a result of that, they're incredibly brittle as well. Um, and it's really this brittle part that I'll come back to in the later part of the talk. But nevertheless, they're highly crystalline. You get very, very good performance. They're very expensive to grow. But that's not necessarily a problem. They're going to be in expensive technologies. But really one of the things I, I, I wanted to highlight is they're typically limited in size. They're very rigid. They're grown on things, I, I didn't want to show it, but it's something like a, a seven-inch record, if any of you remember that, or a compact disc. It's about that size. And, and that, too, I'll, I'll return to that with the newer technologies later on. So where are these devices employed, and why have they helped us bring our technology or shape the present, if you like, is in this system, well, this is what I would say is the real World Wide Web. This is the internet, the physical internet. If we look at any one of these lines between these continents here, they're essentially optical fibers. These are light pipes. And so our laser, our device, would be in one continent. You would turn it on and off to send some information. The light would come through, and then you need that other type of device to collect the light and turn it into electricity. And this is essentially communication. I wouldn't be exaggerating to say the internet is, has shaped and will continue to shape our society and what we do. Uh, interestingly, these were really set up, certainly around this time, as simply increasing telephone lines. The, the concept of an internet wasn't necessarily around. Uh, there was some talk about videos, but that was it. The, the, the idea of the internet wasn't there when this was being developed. But it's a very good um, illustration of, of that, hopefully, that, that kind of Russian doll. You've got this core optoelectronic device, and this is the application, this is the technology. But as I said, I would also look at the devices, the technology as well. Well, it's not just the internet as a communication technology, but you find them in many things in healthcare. You find lasers and detectors and all sorts of things for sensing. The energy generation, particularly, you can think of solar cells. Um, and environmental work, we're increasingly conscious of, of the gases, the hydrocarbons, and all things like this around. So people often use lasers. They're very effective at the laser detector system to monitor environments. So I think they're having a good impact as they are. But it's really what's new, what's coming with, what's new in these devices, what's going to happen. Um, and it's not simply just different colours or faster or better. I want to focus on 
really what I've called a step change. It's a new type of materials. And as opposed to those crystalline, beautifully ordered materials, these materials are often, we refer to them as molecularly based, carbon-based materials. And they can come in a variety of forms, and this is one of the attractions. I'm particularly going to try and show you how the soluble form, in the form of an ink, is actually substantially impacting the future and, and what we do, or what we could do. So if we just look at this solution-based technology, this is still materials. I'm still interested in making a device that either emits light or absorbs light. But because of, we're starting with a solution, an ink, it's, it's manufactured, it's produced in a very, very different way. And that means a number of things. It means we don't have to use very brittle substrates. We can use flexible substrates. We can use silk. You can use paper. These are, this is an ink that you can place on a surface. And that surface could also be curved. But if you take these inks and you deposit it sufficiently long enough, you can end up with a device. And you'll notice on this picture, I don't need a scale bar. This is somebody's thumb. So you can see how big the device is. But the real point I, I'd like to emphasize is this flexible substrates and these large areas. And, and this is perhaps, I see, uh, not just myself, many people see where the opportunities are. So it seems um, useful to ask for how large. This was what they call a display wall. So we've been quite familiar now with these large flat screen televisions. They're still quite rigid. So they're still produced mainly on glass. Um, but with this type of technology and this solution-based technology, you can start to think about inkjet printing them. It's an inkjet printer that's really quite different than the one you'll find in your home, but nevertheless, it's an inkjet printer. It's just a matter of scale. And the really quite remarkable thing is this entire panel is curved. It's been totally inkjet printed. So the little pixels, you've got these multiple layers, as I showed you in a traditional semiconductor, but this has all been deposited by an inkjet. And you can now stitch these together to this wall is now 25 feet or something with this high resolution uh, display. Well, that's really how it's going. And when you see some of the other things, you're taking these semiconductor devices and you're the idea of small scale has now gone out of the window because of the solution. We can change the manufacturing techniques. Some of the techniques we're using are more akin to a printing press or screen printing. And you're starting to get flexible Kindles. Or this new television here is a millimeter thick, and this has bend radiuses of centimeters. This is this display, the electricity in and the optics out. If you look at the other side of things, where we're collecting light, we now have solar cells on rolls of meters long and then be placed as some of them have been here. This is in Singapore recently in a, a 250 acre site. These are solar trees. They're 50 feet tall. They've got solar cells embedded in the design, the architecture. And during the day they collect the light. It's then stored energy in batteries. And then at night it's illuminated. So I think this is quite a, an interesting idea of the future of but then fundamentally, there's still these two devices, still playing around with light and matter. But it's really the scale can give you other things. And there's one thing I just want to touch on, 
is when we have the ability to produce at the large areas, we have the ability to produce materials and devices at the curved surfaces, we can start to think about real energy management, harvesting light, not, not reliant on our uh, air conditioning. So it's not just generating light or generating energy through solar cells, it's actually being more mindful of the energy we've got. And, and I think these are some really huge opportunities. So I try to give a snapshot of, of certainly the technology. As I said, I, I hope we can speculate on the future. I certainly don't want to pretend I, I have some insight into it. But I think out of that title, it's probably the word shaping might be a better way to concentrate with these smooth, flexible materials. I think it really is the shape that's, uh, that is really open to us. And that's the form and that's how we use it. It's very different to, to how maybe these devices were originally conceived. Um, it will almost certainly come into the Internet of Things. I think maybe Holly may or may not mention something about that in her title. Um, and I think I'll just like to leave you with Possibly the last slide is where you can take this even further. And there's enough work now where, again, because of the form of these components, that, I don't know, augmented humans are starting to look at sensors on the skin. This is a transparent plaster with a circuit board that's monitoring sweat level skin. Uh, your appearance, this is an LED. <laughs> this is a phone. <laughs> Thank you very much. And last time I spoke at Lincoln, it was quite a long time ago, and very early on I was told to shut up, sit down, and have a drink. <laughs> so um, I apologise if that's what you feel at the end of this week. <laughs> um, it was to a society called the Dagnant Society, which I don't know if it still exists. It was a literary kind of society where most people spoke about poetry and literature, and we've already done some of that tonight. Um, I didn't. I spoke about the big policy in the 60s of putting motorways into the centre of cities and the big disruption it caused in Oxford when somebody said, let's build a motorway um, down by the river and how people came together to oppose it. So as you see, I've always been interested in how the built environment affects your life. And I've spent my career working on a lot of things related to that. Um, I started because I thought cities were interesting and they were places where people came together, shared ideas, and that sort of proved to be the case throughout. Um, I now work in energy, because I used to work in transport, um, and I've kind of brought some of the same thinking as I think about um, energy. Today, I sort of talk a bit about why I think infrastructure is interesting and kind of promote infrastructure, because I think it's quite important. Um, secondly, talk about how I think things have changed and why, what's pacing up in infrastructure and what technology is doing in that, that pacing up and the pace of change. And then something about at the end about how I think that really applies um, to the energy sector. Um, I have no idea whether there are people in the audience who are more specialised than um, I am. I think there probably will be. A lot of people who are much more specialised, but there will be people who know more than I do about a particular aspect of any part of what I say. So if I say something that's deeply offensive to anybody's particular um, research interests, again, I apologise. Um, because I, I've been working in energy for uh, nearly two years. Um, and I work at the most senior level, so I spend a lot of time not getting very close to anything. 
and um, yeah, fly over the top of things. So why is infrastructure important? Uh, infrastructure is important because it gets you to the hospital, um, it gets you to the school, it gets you to where you work, um, but it also brings electricity to you to make sure that you can power your computer um, and it makes sure you can communicate with people, it makes sure we can keep the lights on, it keeps us warm, all sorts of reasons why it's important. I think visually it's really important too, I think, how it impacts our lives. I lived in Manila for a bit, um, for about nine months, and there is a ring road that goes through the centre, around the centre of Manila. Um, it is very ugly, there are no two ways about it, it is really horrible. It's a big uh, four carriageways in each direction, and then concrete on either sides to keep the noise away from the people who are living to one side or the other. By the way, lots of people live on the road and under the road and over the road as well, but kind of the protection is supposed to be those people living to one side or the other. And I found it one of the most depressing places I've ever lived for all sorts of reasons, including we worked in an office that didn't have running water, and when the rats came out at night, that was when we went home. Um, so kind of really fundamentally, why infrastructure affects people's lives. And I think the other reason it should be caring, you should care about it, and you see I'm quite passionate about this, is that actually the UK is quite good at it. We've been good at infrastructure for a long time. Um, we were good at it at the start of the 19th century. It's a big factor in how our economy grew, and it's a big factor in the way other people's economies grow, and we've still stayed good at it. So um, when I was working in the rail industry, people would say to me, but surely our rail system is a bit shit. Um, <laughs> answer, yeah, actually when you're in it, yes it is, but if I compare it with other people's rail system, no, it's pretty good. Um, we, we require a lot of our infrastructure. We ask it to do multiple jobs in pretty much every sector of infrastructure, and most economies don't. They get their infrastructure to do one thing or another, and we require it to do a lot. So therefore we have complex pieces of infrastructure. We're also quite good at delivering it on time and on budget, which is again something that other people have been less good at. We've been bad at for a while, but we've got good at it again. Um, and therefore we employ a lot of people in that sector and we can ship our skills internationally. Um, and at a time of change and challenge in international relationships, I think that's quite important. So I hope I've made the case for why infrastructure is important and why you should love it. This is a bit of infrastructure which will be opened by Prince Charles uh, next week. And it is a Highbury substation. So this is um, in the middle of that picture, the bit with the sort of funnels at the front and a green sloping roof at the back is the substation itself. The little box here is the access to the tunnels that run underneath London. We've just built 32 kilometers of tunnel tunnel with a diameter of about four metres, through which we power basically most of North London. Um, 400 kilowatt volt uh, bits of cable inside. The other good thing about this is it at the back there's a school, and the school uses all of the excess heat that, that is created by the substation. This bit at the front is mostly housing um, and some employment and shops, but all done through uh, big scheme that we've done over the last few years. So, kind of quite exciting. Um, the guy who did this for me, I was, Holly said, you're very organized, it's not me who's organized. So somebody wrote this speech and he stuck it on little cards. Anyway, he has written in here that it was built by very bright engineers. I have to say that now as one of the works for me. That is Gareth. So <laughs> <laughs> um, 
build things like this. Um, and he's now spending good time with me as part of his career development to understand how all the different bits of our business fit together and where capital delivery and infrastructure investment fits in the other things that we do. So this is kind of state of the art, um, and this is where it's at in engineering in London at the moment. And there's more pictures. So this is actually Gareth. He also told me I had to point that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just shows you kind of the scale of what we're talking about, shows you how the heat exchanger works for the school, um, and the level of investment and focus we've had to put in. I think it's also fascinating. You've done this very quietly. So I lived in London all the time we've been building this and didn't know that it was going on. Um, I don't think you could say that across Um If you've been to London recently, you can probably feel it. So I thought just talk a bit, I'm going to... Why technology, pace of change, what's going on? So on the left-hand side of this slide is a kind of 40 years of if you went to work at the beginning of that period and you finished your working life 40 years later, your working life probably wouldn't have felt any different over that period. You come in, you sat at your desk, did whatever you did, and then go home or work on a production line. Then kind of a bit of change began. We've got a computer, um, we had a bit of fast food, and for about 20 years, kind of that was changing revolution in society. Next 15 years or so, the PC, the beginning of different forms and models of consumer relationships. So first direct was a new bank. And then a big change, of course, in um, the way that politics was played out across the globe, and a period of acceleration. Then getting into this, this century, or this millennium, um, kind of short period again of a jolt, some changes, much more personal things going on, coming directly to us. And then I think kind of disruption, really digital period in the last kind of few years. And maybe we're beginning to see another change, I think. The beginning of some re-regulation. It was interesting, Holly was talking about the ethics of where you use data. I think we're beginning to see some signs of change. And Brexit is one of those examples. Trump is another example, very much at different ends of the spectrum. But the sense that there's been separation of communities through some of this. So it's got so personal almost that we pulled each other apart and we can't find ways of coming back together. So I think we may be moving from a period of great disruption to a period in which we'll find other sorts of disruption, but that won't necessarily be led by technology. Um, I think it might be led by social movements and particularly government arrangements, which I think is a big change. I also think all of this stuff is massively difficult for businesses. Um, so it was quite easy in the 40 years where you came to work, you did the same thing, you just might have progressed a bit up there, but not much change. It's really hard, particularly for infrastructure, which is expensive, takes a long time to deliver, and has an impact on your life for a long time. So we were kind of good at standing back, thinking, what are we going to need in a few years' time, planning it, then delivering it. And by the way, a few years is probably 20 years in itself, from when you think about it to when you get it in infrastructure terms. So how do we think about that in a world that has gone to this kind of speed of delivery and change? What does that mean for how we use our infrastructure and how we make it much more sympathetic to those fast movements. This is an indication of how quickly some bits of infrastructure have moved, and the link from Paul's speech to mine, um, kind of where solar is, and how quickly in the UK solar has grown. Gareth apologised that he didn't have 2017 numbers. He said it feels very outdated already. <laughs> um, so it kind of just shows you, I think, the extent of change. Renewables have overtaken coal. 
Um, we have had our first coal-free day on the energy system in the UK last year. Um, we use more energy um, usually in the kind of early evening peaks. This time we had our peak in the afternoon because we were using things it, it, this year. Big changes in the way people use energy, partly created by this kind of change in technology. The first coal-free day was kind of amazing to me anyway. I sort of thought, why did I get interested in infrastructure when I was a student? In part, it was because of the economic revolution, and that was all about coal, way back when. So the notion that we don't use coal now, and we won't be using coal, um, it continues to fascinate me about how we've moved, but there will be other things that change. So a traditional power system in energy kind of looks like this. You create it up here. You move it along some big power lines. By the way, I own the transmission bits. Then you put it into the smaller bits, the distribution, you kind of download it. Then you take it to people who want to use it. Very linear from one place to another. Very easy to manage. And what we did was just balance. We also, as well as owning the transmission businesses, we also balance it all. So we keep it all so that the frequency across the system stays at 50. Uh, hertz pretty much all the time if we could possibly achieve it. And that's quite easy because you know what people did last year and the year before on the same day. You kind of know what their TV schedule is because you've got the radio times, you get it out, you have it next to you, and you know when they're going to go and make their cup of tea. And broadly, you can then turn power on or off from the generating systems. Maybe if you need a bit extra, you let some water down a hill, it creates a bit for you, and you're fine. In the new world that looks more like this, which I hope you can immediately see as a little busier, um, it's not quite so easy to balance it in that same way. Partly because there's a lot more going on, and partly because you've got feedback loops within the system. So um, down here in the residential customer, probably thing you're most familiar with, you have solar panels on people's houses. They're creating their own energy. So therefore, they don't need the grid so much. Some of them, not all of them. So some people do, some people don't. And we don't have a lot of information about that. So we can't tee up what they're doing with their TV and what they're doing with their solar panel in the same way. And yet, we still have to keep the system balanced because otherwise we have uh, a moment when there's no power going anywhere, I get fired. We have five days without power in London, nobody can use a computer. Again, infrastructure being really important. Lots of other things happening, electric vehicles, where are we going with that? I'm moving this on because I'm running out of time. Um, so, what else do I think is going to be more important for infrastructure? So this is uh, in energy. I think thinking about how we balance that system across the pieces, I'm going to have a nice segue to Holly, is um, we need really very, very sophisticated modelling techniques. Um, we have thousands of people and organisations and systems which are creating energy now, and obviously millions of users. Uh, it used to be we had maybe, you could count them on the fingers of two hands, the generators. But honestly, people rang them up, and somebody went and did something, and a few minutes later, the power levels changed. We can't do it in that kind of time frame now. We have to do it using much more automated techniques. So it went from ringing people up to faxing people. Um, we still fax some power stations. I didn't think faxes still existed, but they do. Um, and we have tried to modernise that system. And I've spent 100 million quid so far, and I don't have a result. 
which is why I would quite like AI to start solving some problems for me. I'm not joking, by the way. I haven't spent 100 million of my own pounds. I've spent 100 million of your pounds and the rest of the UK's pounds on trying to balance the system. When I said I thought the UK asked for more of its infrastructure than anybody else does. We also, on top of all of this, have a really very complicated commercial arrangement by which people get paid in this system. Much more complicated than any other um, economy has tried to do. We regulate it in a different way and we provide competitive pressure into that system in a different way. Which means that system that I'm trying to create both has to model the cost of it and how it's going to balance it. And so far, we haven't solved the problem. Technology is really necessary to help us do those things. There are lots more things that we will probably talk about in the break, but I've run out of my 15 minutes, so thank you. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Polly. Um, so you answer our question today. I'm going to talk a little bit about the technology that I believe is going to define our time. That's what IBM is calling the cognitive era. And that is artificial intelligence. Now, technically, that should probably read machine learning algorithms, uh, but that doesn't sound nearly as sexy. So I'm going to flip between AI and machine learning and try and hold your interest in that way. Now, it's not strictly my area of expertise, uh, but I do use some of it in my research, and like all PhD students, I do enjoy going on a good tangent. So, AI is always described in the media as this big, scary thing that doesn't really seem to represent what's actually being worked on. It's the newest buzzword, along with fake news and how scientists have identified that coffee and chocolate and bananas and Wi-Fi all seem to create and cure cancer. <laughs> AI does that too, by the way, at least according to the University of Southern California. Stephen Hawking has said that, uh, has said, I fear AI may replace humans altogether and it could spell the end of the human race. Um, alternatively, expert in the field and developer of some of the most popular open source learning resources for AI, Andrew Ng, insists that worrying about AI is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. And the man attempting to overpopulate Mars, Elon Musk, uh, says that um, with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. So AI is predicted to be both our helpful saviour and our arrogant destruction, and in many ways it's, all, it's already quietly inserted itself into our lives. But just how hyped up are the headlines? And to disappoint no doubt a few of you, I'm not going to be delving into the concept of superintelligence, um, benevolent or otherwise, but I'll instead attempt to raise a few of the issues currently at the forefront of developing the field itself. Uh, but first, how does it work? So machine learning algorithms are a little different to the sets of instructions that have been in our computers for decades already. Normally we'd hard code an algorithm with instructions telling it directly how to solve a problem. The difference with a machine learning algorithm is that it learns how to solve the problem by itself from examples. And in some cases, we don't even tell it what problem to solve. We only ask it to find a pattern in the data. So I'll use machine vision as an example. Hard coding a computer with instructions to recognize a dog is actually really tricky. How would you hard code a machine to recognize both a Newfoundland and a Chihuahua as dogs? It doesn't really work. What would we say? They both have two ears, a dark nose, uh, they have two eyes, they're both furry, they've got four legs, they carry six. Um, for every rule, there are exceptions and nuances. And humans have vision adapted to a concept called object invariance. We recognise them despite its nuances. 
For example, a self-driving car needs to be able to recognise a dog or a person or a road sign in the light, dark, the rain, or the snow. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> So I'm going to talk specifically about deep neural networks, which have revolutionised machine learning applications the last decade, particularly in computer vision. Now, as you can imagine from the name, these neural networks are inspired by biology. In the visual processing part of our brains, we have neurons that fire corresponding to certain things we see. For example, horizontal lines or a change in colour corresponding to an edge. Um, each neuron responds to a particular brushstroke on the canvas that is the life around us. So when a computer sees an image, it's really seeing a pixel array of numbers. Uh, how does a computer get from a number array to a chihuahua? It applies a filter to identify specific features, which slides across the image. So let's start with a very simple one, just a vertical line. A filter is just an array of numbers and zeros, so in this case it has a bunch of fives in the middle column to make it a vertical line. So when we move this filter across the image, we multiply the numbers in the filter by the number of the corresponding position in the image. So let's take part of the ear as an example. The ear might translate to fives and zeros that look like this, and if the two arrays overlap quite well, then we're going to get a high number out. And you know there's probably a vertical line in that position. Probably would do well identifying the other ear as well, and uh, maybe the legs and part of the tail. But it probably wouldn't do very well at identifying the eye of the dog, because there's only some similarity in that filter, and you get a lower score out. But if you have a more circular filter, then it's going to do much better at identifying the locations of the eye, and also maybe the nose in that image as well. So with different filters, you can identify the locations of different features, such as curves or vertical lines or circles, and this is what some of the other ones look like. And the next layer of the network accepts the output of the first layer as its next input. So essentially the locations of some of these lower level features, where they were found. Pass it through another set of filters and you can start to get higher level features. For example, say you might have an ear made up of two straight lines at different angles. And you can also consider a larger area, so you can zoom in and zoom out. And thus with more layers, you start to see some more abstract concepts forming like faces, for example. The output is a probability map. For example, the probability that an image is a dog or a cat or a mouse based on the features that have been identified as previously belonging to dogs or cats or mice. But how does the network actually know what values to put in those filters? Well, it starts off... This process is called training the network. It's really important. All the filters start off with, say, random numbers. And as the network is shown more and more labelled images, it iterates through different values, trying to minimise the error between the output the network is getting and the output has been told to the right answer. And that's called supervised learning. Now, with enough training data and enough iterations, they can identify the features that make a chihuahua a dog and not a mouse. So, neural networks have been able to outperform humans in image recognition for a few years now. And the same principles can be applied to speech recognition and data classification, Pretty much anything that boils down to numbers, and as long as we can extract features from these signals, we can apply machine learning techniques to them. And we already are. We're applying them in image classification with facial recognition technology and cell counting in science, numerical prediction and regression, so selling insurance premiums, the future prices of securities, energy demand forecasting. 
Uh, we're doing transcription and language translation. We're doing anomaly detection in credit card fraud. If you get a text from your bank saying, did you make this purchase at wherever, then it's probably a machine learning algorithm that's done it. Um, then we also have database mining. Uh, sorry, we also have um, missing information, so Netflix movie recommendations or Spotify. Database mining, turning our medical records into medical knowledge. And of course, they can play board games really, really well. But I want to talk very quickly about three of the issues surrounding the general use of the algorithms as they become more prevalent in our lives. And those issues are the possibility of bias, their accountability, and privacy, all of which are heavily interlinked. So firstly, bias. Machine learning algorithms are as flawed as their design, and they're also as flawed as the training data. For example, a few years ago, an algorithm that had been trained by Google to categorize images was recognizing people with dark skin as being gorillas. Uh, because the training data set they used did not have many black people, and so it simply didn't learn how to recognize them properly. Uh, another example would be the software in Nikon cameras, uh, reading photos of Asian people's blinking. And Microsoft's chatbot Tay was taken offline after a single day of use, after it learned from interactions with humans how to be genocidal, racist, and Holocaust-denying. Networks designed to whittle down candidates trained uh, candidates for jobs trained on data from previous decades, for example, could and have picked up on old prejudices from past human hiring decisions. For example, not hiring women of childbearing age. So, and their design itself can be just as biased. There are at least 24 state justice systems in the US which use models, including data such as previous encounters with police and criminal records of family members in order to aid sentencing decisions. Now, this information is far more likely to be detrimental to young black men from poor neighbourhoods, and it's also information that would be inadmissible in court. So, algorithms can be used to remove bias that is innate to humans if they're designed well enough and if they have complete enough training data sets. And that's one reason there's a really big call for diversity in the field, where currently only 10% of machine learning engineers are women. But the issue specific to deep networks, which have become so popular in recent years, is that they are black boxes. We really can't be sure what's going on inside them. You know, when you have an existing bias around a piece of material evidence in a courtroom, you can ask, how did you arrive at that judgment? But that's nearly impossible to do with deep neural network, but the decisions are still having real consequences for people's lives. So for AI to be accountable, it needs to be able to explain itself. Bias can lead to an infringement of human rights, and a lack of transparency can make it really hard for the person to prove that their rights have been infringed. But transparency and accountability are not always the same thing. Models can have tens of millions of weights and numbers which don't translate to anything we've recognised or be permissible in court. Transparent in this case does not mean understandable, not to a layman and not to an expert. This is actually my model, and apparently it's got 214,193 parameters there. And I've got no idea what they are, I only know that they fit together well enough and they give me a good answer. So, publishing the network architectures themselves would also mean corporations revealing legally protected trade secrets and leaving their systems open to being hacked or subverted. And there's also a wider privacy concern relating to the transparency of the data because you can't analyse a decision from the model without knowing how it was trained and the input data itself, which consists of very personal information. So, transparency is out. What about accountability? 
Well, there's been some steps towards this. The incoming EU general data protection in 2016, which is due to come into effect in May 2018, makes a first step towards addressing these accountability concerns. It states that citizens have the right to understand why a decision was made when it was made by a machine, and the right not to be subject to a decision based solely on automated processing. However, a paper developed by the Alan Turing Institute and the Oxford Internet Institute has suggested that this uh, GDPR only provides really limited protections and it's not actually legally binding. It also allows member states to draw their own exemptions. And our exemptions have been applied, unsurprisingly, to, in a very broad way, for law enforcement and intelligence service processing. So GCHQ can still do their thing. It will be really interesting to see in the next few years how these ambiguous directives are being applied in the courtroom and how previous laws relating to data use and anti-discrimination are also applied. And it's worth noting that challenging a decision is really difficult if you don't know how it's been reached. And I wonder if there are some people in this room who have already sent CVs to companies that have been rejected or accepted for interview, shortlisted essentially solely on an algorithmic basis. So lastly, I'll talk about privacy, which I really can't have a talk about AI without mentioning, although it should be a complete topic in itself. The reason the powerhouses in AI are powerhouses, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, is that they have your data. You know, they have your profiles, your photos, your search history. Facebook can use the information from its 1.3 billion members. Amazon has every single purchase you've made. Google has every Google image and also every one of your Google searches. And that data is your data. It's worth billions to them and we give it away for free all the time. The data companies collect from our technology can be legally collected by the government or sold to the highest bidder, depending on where the companies are based. And I'll mention one example. Google only believe your data has been read if it's been read by a human. But the Google Mail AI reads every email sent to or by you and uses it to deliver targeted advertising. Computer storage is also now cheap enough that the companies can afford to keep your data indefinitely. They don't see this as invading privacy. And Google is based in the US, which means the NSA also have the legal right to request that data. So it's not the government. Private companies also use targeted advertising based on an email address or name tied to a credit or store card to enable eerily accurate predictions, which might make your shopping easier, but come at a big cost of privacy, as a teenager in the US found out when her pregnancy was revealed to her father by flies for baby clothes and cots posted to her door. So, technology itself is morally indifferent most of the time. A phone can be used to detonate a bomb or it can be used to call your grandma. However, technology changes the world around us so fast that we hardly have time to stop and think if the change is always for the better or if regulation is keeping up with innovation. Instead of using an algorithm predicting rates of refunding to judge whether criminals should be given longer sentences, Durham police are currently using one to help them identify who would benefit most from programs aimed at rehabilitating moderate risk criminals. It's all about how you, how you use them. Thankfully, both the public and private sector are interested in working on some of these issues. There are a number of collaborations that have been set up, including Google's uh, People and Artificial Intelligence Research Initiative, um, the Partnership on AI with Amazon, Facebook, Google, IBM, Microsoft, DeepMind, and Apple, as a late comment, uh, Princess Web Transparency and Accountability Project, and many others. 
It's in the interest of business as well to have good regulation that builds trust with consumers, especially as the use of AI becomes more prevalent and its advertising is more obvious. So to leave you with this, some of you may be thinking there's a lot of risks around AI, so why should we bother in the first place? Is it just because we can? There are lots of ethical questions surrounding how they're used, and I'll leave you with one question concerning about whether or not we should be doing it in the first place. 1.2 million people die every year due to car accidents around the world, and most of them are pedestrians, and most of them are caused by human error. Machines also have much faster reaction times to avoid collisions, but how on earth can we hard code our instincts into a car? Should we swerve to avoid a child in the road, knowing that we could hit either another car, perhaps injuring ourselves, whoever's in that car? Or should we perhaps swerve into a parked car, knowing the child's mother is probably behind it? Yeah, who is responsible for the outcome if the result is not optimal or the reaction is not human enough? And this is why we need all the academic disciplines other than computer science in the conversation. After all, if we can think of a way of being better than humanly possible, uh, to potentially save 1.2 million lives every year, do we not have an ethical responsibility to at least try in the first place? Thanks everyone for listening to you. <laughs>